Hello, my name is Grace and I'm a white person with a diagnosed personality disorder living in the London borough of Tower Hamlets. I'm also an ally for black people and people of Asian and minority ethnic heritage. People living with a personality disorder can have both similarities as well as many differences. It can look very different for people who are grouped together by professionals. Sometimes people can be blamed by their friends, family or society for the behaviour that results from the disorder. This feeling of being misunderstood can result in feelings of disconnection from others. It's estimated that 10 to 13 percent of the population has a personality disorder and one in 10 with the disorder completes suicide. I know from personal experience how difficult it is to get the right diagnosis and the right treatment. In fact, this was so difficult, it is painful for me to comprehend that this state of affairs is even worse for black and brown people. Cultural differences are not always accounted for nor addressed by clinicians, most of whom are white themselves, and this can lead to wrongful diagnosis or missed opportunities, and therefore prolong the real disadvantage linked to unconscious bias and racism. A study in 2011 in the London Borough Tower Hamlet stated, the referral population ethnic profile does not match the wider population of the borough. A third of the borough is Bangladeshi, but only 9% of those referred to the service are. So the numbers don't add up. And to help put some flesh on the issue, we are promoting the voices of black and brown service users who have received the diagnosis in order to take a look at some of the problems. We also want to give some hope to those who are still suffering, perhaps without a diagnosis, or for those on a never-ending waiting list. Um, but I do go by the name as Danny, and that's how I'm known. I'm a lived experience practitioner uh, working with the Healthy London Partnership in the transformation of the personality and complex needs. I currently work on the communications team and that's one of the reasons why I'm hosting this podcast uh, as I personally feel it's really important to talk about the transformation of what's happening and currently happening but also to give lived experience practitioners like myself an opportunity to discuss a bit about our journey living with personality disorders. For me I can give a brief background about myself. I grew up as a young child in a very abusive home, experienced very many different levels of abuse um, as a child, went through the CAMS, you know, so I was known as a child to the CAMS team. However, my condition was not picked up then. Um, and as a child going through so many different types of abuse in the family home, it got to a stage that I no longer wanted to live. At the age of 13, I tried to commit suicide um, and was in intensive care for quite a long time. My parents came to see me while I was in hospital um, and announced that they no longer wanted me to return back to the family home. So I left the hospital and went straight into foster care, uh, where I stayed with a family from a black background, Caribbean background. Um, and I lived with them up to the age of 17. During that time I felt that it was really a good place for me to be in foster care because I was able to um, conduct my education more appropriately and effectively 
um, and came out of school with some really good grades that went really well. However, it was very hard to relay the challenges I was feeling with my mental health, with my foster carers, whether that is due to lack of knowledge and information that they may have or cultural differences. But unfortunately, it wasn't picked up in foster care. Um, and at the age of 17 and a half, I then moved into my own property. So I was quite young, living by myself and working. As I was going on through my early 20s, I was in quite a lot of very abusive relationships myself and had gone from being a victim to to being the perpetrator of um, being in quite aggressive relationships not understanding how I why I was getting so angry so quickly and so emotional and not able to maintain my feelings in the way that other people around me would so I felt it was very hard to speak about that to other people whether it was friends family or associates or even my GP health practitioner and I was again referred to you know the mental health services and eventually after the being given two wrong diagnoses, uh, one was bipolar disorder and the other one was borderline personality disorder. I finally got a formal diagnosis, which was of personality disorder in 2012. From that point there, my life started changing a lot more for the better, um, in a sense that I could understand what I had, I can research what I have, look, look into it. I had something that I could discuss with my support network and try and help them to understand the challenges that I was going through. It was hard um, telling people that you have that diagnosis because at the time, I mean, even still now, it's something that's not fully understood and people are still quite wary about it. Even professional clinicians, you know, are quite wary about that. However, I did receive so much support from the mental health team. Um, they helped me out of financial difficulties I was in because I was so impulsive during my 20, doing a lot of um, behaviours, I guess, that was based off the emotions. So I was managed to get a solicitor that helped me reduce my debts. I was referred to the education employment training at the Mental Health Trust where um, a lady helped me start applying for the Open University, which I did, and I got accepted. I completed my science degree, bachelor's with honours, six years down the line because I'd done it part-time while I was working full-time. Having those two things really kept me balanced, having something to look forward to, to get up, and something that was continuous, that would be challenging me, and feeling like I was making a difference. And hence why most of all the work I've done has been working with vulnerable people, with mental health or disabilities, um, homelessness and rough sleepers, as I feel that a lot of my life journey, I can relate to very many different groups, and vulnerable people that are out there. Um, and I've loved doing that and I've not changed. I'm still working with supporting people. I am not just a lived experience practitioner with the Healthy London Partnership. I'm also a peer mentor lead at two prisons within London. I'm also a peer engagement facilitator at the Mental Health Trust in Wandsworth. Um, so that's really great. And also in the middle of doing my master's for forensic psychology. So you know, I do question myself a lot when I look back that would I be here now if I 
didn't know what I had and was able to access what little support, because there was a little support only around then. Um, there was only one project that was in my borough for people with personality disorders. And unfortunately, I couldn't attend there because I live and work in the same borough and would more than likely see people at the group that I would be affiliated to, whether I was supporting them or it could be somebody like a neighbour. So that I found that was quite hard. Um, but however, I did get 18 months of psychotherapy instead, and that was brilliant, of MBT, Mentalisation Behavioural Therapy. And that also did change my life an awful lot. So now that's kind of me coming to a closure in the sense of saying that there were some challenges and barriers, definitely um, being mixed race as well, that imposed quite different challenges um, in terms of how my family supported me or did I feel I could go to either side of the family. None of my GPs or none of my psychotherapists, psychiatrists I've ever had have been from a black Asian background. So it was always more than likely a white English British person or someone from a European background. And I feel what I think could benefit now is seeing a lot more of these things back then in 2012 changing now to support people from black and Asian, black and brown backgrounds. Yeah, so that's a little bit about me. And I will now start to um, move on to the podcast. Thank you for listening. Hi, Paul. Hi, Abdi. We're doing a podcast, putting a series of podcasts together. Um, which we'd like people with personality disorder um, diagnosis to come and share their lived experiences, uh, good and bad. Um, and the hope is to be able to send these podcasts out to other service users and professionals to learn something from all of our experiences of coming from a black and brown background. Um, so I was thinking what we'll do, in no particular order, Abdi, would you like to just tell me a little bit just about how you did come about getting your diagnosis? For me, uh, the diagnosis was actually initially a misdiagnosis. So several years ago, after understanding that there was trauma or triggering, I went to get some help through my GP and actually it was because of trigger warning my father passed, which is why I resonated with what you said earlier, Daniela. And that opened up a Pandora's box of, of trauma. And initially the diagnosis was actually PD. So I went to my GP, so most people's first point of call. That led to a visit at Bethnal Green and Bell Community Mental Health Services and involved many discussions, many therapy sessions, individual therapy, which was at that time, or well, is a safe space. So that was my journey. The diagnosis was bipolar, then PD. And that has, is now more and more a drive in terms of diagnosis and, and and the support that you can get. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you. Definitely can relate. I got uh, my first diagnosis was uh, border. No, it, was, it wasn't borderline. I had about three, but bipolar was definitely the first one. Um, and I, where I work in mental health um, and I study, I just, I knew I didn't have it. So I challenged it. And thank Me God too. I definitely brilliant stuff. Right. How about you, Paul? Hi, uh, um, I'm Paul. I, I got diagnosed with it while I was in prison, um, near the end of my sentence. And I, I basically just denied it. I said, what, 
no, I've got no personality disorder. And because you're in prison, it's your home. So you went around, I went around and asked various people, staff, have I got a personality disorder? And a lot of them said no to me. So I was puzzled into saying, well, why have I got been diagnosed with personality disorder? So in order to get yourself out of jail, you have to address it. So I only, I could only address it in jail, basically. Um, I'd done a very long time, but listening to everybody, all my life, half my life was spent in jail. So it took me back to all my events of my childhood, my lifestyle, my upbringing, my culture. It, that made a difference to me. Because we mentioned it earlier on in here that your parents, one of your parents could have had it. You know, and like I said before, I, I, I had a horrible upbringing. Now, when I look back on it now, I look back on it, I think to myself, is that where I got my personality disorder from? Is that where it stemmed from? You know, because in order to be in front of it, I have to go back. And obviously, I've done a lot of work, therapy for 18 months, this course and that course. And my, my dad passed away in 2006, and my sister passed away in 2014. And they both died on my birthday. But these people I had issues with, as in, did that have a part of my my behaviour? You understand? So I seek the help, went and done courses in jail, various courses. It wasn't about just ticking that box. For me, it was about ticking the box and taking on board what you've learned and sort of taking that on board. So when you come out into the big bad world, which I did, I feel that I wanted to spread the word to various people and sort of share it with them, my, share my experience. Um, and I, I, I'm still getting the help now in this hospital, psychology, key worker. Yes, I'm doing well, but I've had my little ups and downs here. But it's about trying to stay focused, do that self-talk, do those courses, go back to those courses that you've learned and just start reliving some of them in your head. Wow. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us, Paul and Abdi. Um, and I can relate to both of uh, both in a way. Um, I lost my father last year um, <clears throat> to COVID. So, um, yeah, that's definitely something that holds trick and trigger. Um, and especially if somebody was um, didn't give you the best upbringing, it can be really hard. Um, so I definitely can relate to you both. Um, so I guess looking at after having a diagnosis, um, what kind of services um, were you accessing, if any, or support services? And what challenges do you find when you were trying to access support after your diagnosis? Um, so, Abdi? So, Daniela, the challenge that I had and still have is being patient with waiting list times. Yeah. And certainly where I live in Tahamlis, the average PD waiting list is 19 months. And that means that for 19 months, and I'm still in it, I have to navigate my own pathways, own recovery support. The other challenge that I have is the safe spaces that do exist, whether they are AA safe spaces or DV safe spaces or mental health safe spaces, aren't, aren't for me culturally competent. I don't feel safe in those spaces. And I don't feel that I can go to ask those really uncomfortable questions about trauma and child abuse, trigger warning, 
I went through, or how I can unpack how Paul said so brilliantly, to understand someone today, you have to understand their childhood or the past. And all of that sits in my spirit. So those are the challenges, but actually when you have no options, you you've tried to find your own. If you have the resilience, which is what I've really worked on during COVID, my own mental health resilience, and to know that actually I am powerful and that I am great and that I am human, I am seen and heard and that I am like everybody else and I deserve treatment and I deserve care and attention. So I think all of that work was about improving my own self-esteem about who I am because someone is loud doesn't mean they have confidence and that's something that I have experienced a lot or because you have perfume on when you go to sessions doesn't mean that you're not in crisis or you because your shirt is pressed or your hair is did or done don't mean that you don't need help so I need help so I think I've learned during COVID that actually the answers are in me I know that sounds so Oprah but it's the truth I can't depend on a structure or people or a clinician to help change the issues that exist behind my closed doors it's in me but that first means that I have to accept that I have a challenge that there is a real problem and I think so it's really important I know it's so hard but it's so important to find the answer in your heart and your own spirit because the answer really is in in us our own journey of recovery it's, it's in the individual that's what I have seen and that's been my biggest challenge which I have learned to work with every day Oh, that's really insightful, Abdu. Thank you so much. Um, Paul, yeah, would you like um, to add? Sorry, um, I'm just getting a bit emotional here. Um, that's okay. Do you want to take some time out and I will move back uh, on to Abdu, uh, yeah? Uh, I'm all right. Um, you sure? All right, no problem. No pressure. I mean, I, what, just listen to Abdi, he, he, he's right. I mean, I'm still in a place here where I struggle sometimes and I've got psychology here, I've got, I'm a key worker, you know, but a lot of the time when COVID started, it felt like I was banged up again and I couldn't go nowhere. And mentally I was there, you, you know, mentally I was back there and I forgot that I had that freedom and, and, people that are around me to support me and help me and the majority of times I, I saw I, I think to myself I'm going to do this on my own you know because all what I've learned all what I've gone through has made me stronger all the traumas and everything else that was in my life I'm sorry for um sorry for getting like this but I'm really passionate about you know it's brought up a lot of stuff to me and I, I'm not I've not got a problem with crying it's just a natural thing but it shows that you're human Paul it yeah. shows that you're in touch with your emotions and feelings it that's you know, a strength in itself when I walk out this door and I go out it feels so good to um you know to just to, to know what I've learned and try to share it with other people you know strangers that I've never met people yeah. that not that's not been in jail I don't want to be associated with people that are in jail all the time. I want to be associated with people that are not in jail so I can share my story with them. And I've done that to people out there. And that doing that to them is helping me as well. So basically, all the help that I've got here, the help that I've got here, I'm, I'm helping myself as well. Just like Abby said, because there's no places that 
I've known that I could go to to say, can you help me? There's no, you've got a hospital, yeah, but there's no, no, there's nothing out there to sort of say, if you've got a mental health or mental health problem or personality disorder problem, there's nothing out there. You might have to go into a hospital to find that yourself. And some for some people, that's hard to do, you know. So, um, yeah, um, sorry. No, that's really insightful, though, Paul. It's been, it's just, yeah, listening to you, it's really, really insightful. Um, and you do show great strength. Um, and I can feel your passion as well, passing on your experiences to other people. I mean, it's a blessing in itself. Um, the same with you, Abdi. Um, do you feel that culture, your ethnicity made it a challenge and a barrier, whether that's within uh, mainstream services or even amongst family and friends, um, Abdi? Do you know, I, it's a powerful question. I want to say to you just, Paul, like, Paul, I cry all the time. I love to cry. Like, I think it's so important, particularly as black men and as people of colour, that we are totally able to be free but in a safe space and this idea that men can't and trigger warning we know that uh, under 35 the largest group of people who are committing suicide are so i've just got a bee that's entered my living room sorry the um the um the the larger group are uh, uh, it's, it's boys males and and that is because we are so told man up be masculine be strong um, don't cry don't speak on emotion and then for me it's very important that we're able to connect emotionally and also what i have learned and particularly as a man of color as a muslim as a somali from east africa i have learned that actually i'm not alone in my journey and hearing paul in that moment as i started crying paul in that moment it's because i know that i'm not alone I'm not the only one who's struggling and I know that it's important that I continue to use what God has given me to impact people but in a positive way but culturally there is so much stigmatization still certainly in my community that we're either are told mental health doesn't exist or that it's the devil's work or it's the evil eye or that it's you're being punished for something you've done wrong or that actually services won't understand you or one of the biggest things that I when I had my breakdown last year trigger warning during pandemic i was told don't seek help because they'll section you so sectioning became the threat and the concern because we know across trusts across london that black men are most sectioned four times more than others and we know that again like paul said there isn't a safe space i leaving my flat today can't walk across a space and get the help that i need because it just doesn't it doesn't exist so the point is yes i think there is fundamentally a real issue around structural racism, stigmatization, and no safe space for people of color or other minoritized communities. And so what I try to do is create my own little humble support groups, support networks. I have <laughs> community work that keeps me very busy. There was a real good attempt by ELF and service users to meet recently with a PD, and I found it very fruitful that session earlier this year, but I never heard back, and I don't know why, but I did chase. But I suspect that maybe people are in, we're still in pandemic, they're busy. So I, I think there is massive, a massive conversation that needs to happen about true anti-racism, true equality, and true service cultural competence. But it's definitely impacted me as a man of colour in terms of being able to access services. But going back to what Paul said earlier, the answer truly, without sounding so cliche, is in me. I can't fight a system that doesn't want to recognise me. I have to be my own system. 
I totally mm. that and I agree definitely. Thank you, Abdi. Uh, Paul, can you add anything to that? Um, not a lot, really. I just, you know, Abdi's right. There isn't nothing out there. But obviously, I've not looked for anything since I've been out. So because I'm here where I am in this hostel, I've not ventured out, you, you know. But just listening to Abdi and sort of thinking, you know, why can't, why isn't there a, a, a place? You, you know, all these meetings that we're having, this is to show people, obviously, black and white. You, you know, it's not just about... Uh, black person or a brown person it's about a white person as well that's been diagnosed with personality disorder do you know what I mean? because there is no safe place for them to go to all the trauma that they've dealt with over the years you know they need suspect they need a safe place now to sort of know that they can go to if they relapse or if they lapse because the lapse is sort of a one time thing relapse is a continuous thing but they need to know that they've got something out there for them do you know what I mean? so basically I've not really ventured out and looked because I don't know that I know there's nothing there, you know, basically. But like Abby said, you know, you've sometimes you've got to take the reins yourself, you know, and do what you need to do for yourself. Definitely, definitely, Paul. I agree with that 100%. Thank you both. That was really great. Um, just going to move quickly on to do you feel that if we were in therapy, would it make a difference? Um, and I think, Abdi, this is something you might have touched on. Would it make a difference if the therapist or even the professional working with you actually invest their time into getting to know you, um, find out what's important to you? Is your religion, your culture important? Um, do you think you could um, elaborate a little bit on that, Abdi? To me, um, for me, it's, it's, it's really critical because as as a basis of my resilience is my faith in God. In knowing higher power, spirit. And I believe that every time that I fell, I've fallen many times, uh, and the floor being my favorite position in prayer, that I know that, that it was God speaking or power through me. And I think that whether it's Leeds University's research in this, a paper they did called Resilient Minds, or other practices, including mindfulness meditation, which is in Christianity, in prayer, in Buddhism and other faiths, Islam five times a day. That, that moment of being in nature, uh, in our faiths around uh, giving back in charity, which is why I love what I do every day, because it's, it's doing something which is 10 times more important and bigger than me. But I think it's very important to create these spaces that are safe and that are culturally competent and that allow for all groups, as Paul rightly said, but it impacts everyone, as does cancer and other conditions, that there are spaces that are not necessarily always those clinical vanilla white painted rooms, as in literally you walk in, it's got two grey chairs and a white worn LED lights. That's not enough for my recovery. I want to do art therapy. You know, I want to do uh, music therapy. I want what fills my spirit, my cup. And some of that is Tree of Life. And Tree of Life is a whole concept around deep trauma. How can we look at trauma? Because in order to heal, you have to be able to really look on the trauma and forgive and let go and move on. And when we're triggered, because it's amazing how the brain works, right? When we see that smell or that bus or that car or that person that looks like that person, that the whole body has a somatic response. 
So suddenly I'm like, that's why I was really moved by Paul. He went, my feeling, I feel something. And I talk to people and you don't see me, but I use this phrase a lot on my chest when I'm feeling it, I, I feel it. I don't feel good. So I think we have to really look at cultural competence in theology, in African Caribbean uh, contexts, in the white working class, in all groups. But it's very important that those safe spaces aren't always the clinical safe spaces because some community people outside of NHS structures are really trying to do the work, like Thrive in Lambeth or Lambeth Thrive and other many organisations. But we really be, we have to be able to encourage mental health recovery in spaces that aren't always, although they have to have safeguarding, clinical safeguarding, but that are community-led, community-owned, and that involves real trauma recovery. Oh, that's brilliant, Abdo. Paul, would you like to add anything, anything um, to mind? Ask the question again, please. Yeah, uh, so the question was, do you, oh gosh, now you're asking me, I'm, uh, where am I? I've totally <laughs> lost it. Therapy. Therapy. Was it about, would, yes, it's about um, when you was, you know, when you was in prison and you was, um, you was getting therapy inside prison, wasn't you? Did you get yeah. some help? Yeah. It was, yeah. And it's kind of just saying, do you feel that the therapist, um could relate to you did you feel that the therapist asked you what's important to you in terms of your culture your background or your religion do you still did that did that happen or no the, the therapy that i did was group therapy yeah seven people in a room and it like it, it, my guards you know you've got to drop your guards down but later on in life i'm glad i did do it but later on in life when i got diagnosed with TD, like i said you, I look back into therapy, could, yeah. and then back into therapy, looking back into my life. You know what I mean? So there was a couple of setbacks there to sort of see is this the person that that made you from back in your life? I was beaten black and blue, yeah, and then five minutes later, I was told that that person loved me. And for an eight-year-old to think that, it was a confusing. You, that's what is that the way to to love someone by beating them black and blue? What has that person done? You know, so I had that through all my life. And like I said with my sister, there was issues there as well, which I won't go into, but, you know, it was a, it was a trauma. So to go through all of that, when, when, you, when you deal with all of that, and you know how you actually you can function there, if that person that you're talking to will ask you various questions, I would feel comfortable with them. You know, basically for me, because they're there to do the work. And the work, you have to put it out as well, though. So it's a bit of both for me. Yeah, 50-50 kind of. Yeah, that, that makes absolute, that does make sense, Paul. It really does. Um, and again, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, just the last thing we're going to just quickly move on to, and I think both of you have covered it over a few of the other um, conversations we've had, but what would you like to see now in 2021 going forward um being put into services to support people from black and brown and asian backgrounds um yeah what support would you like to see if you if you had a magic wand or you know you won the lottery what would you like to put into services to support other people like ourselves yeah it's, it's um yeah go on go on paul so if i speak first yeah i mean Yes, if I'd won, if I won the lottery, yeah, that'd be amazing. And if that question was there for me then, I would make sure 
that there were facilities, buildings, like in like when you when you go in Africa and you do water wells so they can get fresh water. Do you know what okay. I mean? You know, mm-hmm. things like that. But you know, it's about for me, that brown, white, pink, yellow, that is there for them in various cities. Yeah? Yeah. But the word the word has to be spoken. You can't just put them there. You have to let people know that they're there. You, ha- you, you know, you have to repeat that. You have to advertise it. You have to do whatever you need to do so that people can know that it's out there. Otherwise, they're not going to know. Put buildings up in there, but no one's going to know what that building is. It's about advertisement and spreading yep. the word. That's it. Promoting. That's really good, Paul. Um, Abdi, what would you do? What would you like to see? To be honest, I would like to see more positive words, you know. I think for me, words really matter in mental health. A lot of what we talk about sometimes when you see various sessions in NHS structures or outside in community in many places, and I just finished some today saying, we have to be a bit more hopeful here, guys, because words really matter. And especially if you're going through it, you really don't want the heaviness of it. You don't want the negative of it. And we all have lived experience of the different traumas that we have. But what I want to see is hope, more hope sold by structures, more um, ideas around how to get recovery support. Um, but I think it's really important that the information, as Paul quite rightly said, is cascaded, is able, is presented, which is culturally competent too, and that we can sell, sell positive in mental health. Because you know what tastes for me so good every day? And, you know, at the moment I take one day at a time, but it's my recovery that tastes so good. Because now suddenly I see nature differently. I see my relationships are different. Food tastes better. Everything is more enhanced. But the challenge for me is when I have my bad days. So when I'm really feeling low and I just can't get out of bed and I can't be bothered to do the basics, what I can do to just give me a bit more of that hope. So I would say it'd be great to see actually more hope and more positive language in mental health. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Abdi and Paul. I could literally, I could sit here, forget about my dinner. I could just chat to you both all night. So thank you so much. Thank you for all the speakers who have shared their powerful lived experience stories. If you've been affected by anything you've heard today, please see the link accompanying the podcast. In the next podcast, we are interviewing lived experience practitioners with a diagnosis of complex emotional needs, also known as personality disorder.